Uh, this kidnapping situation has been heavy on our hearts, been on our minds a lot, and I trust that you have been spending special time in prayer about that. But as I started thinking about this and praying about it and, and looking in Scripture, it just jumped out to me how that when you read the book of Acts, you will find that corporate prayer was one of the pillars of the early church. I say once again, corporate prayer was one of the pillars of the early church. It pops up over and over and over again, especially in the first half of the book of Acts. But it's, it's my desire this morning that this message would, would encourage us and would challenge us to, to avail ourselves, to be more active participants in this thing of corporate prayer. That we would be challenged and encouraged by the life-changing power of corporate prayer. And children, when I say corporate prayer, I mean congregational prayer, collective prayer. Prayer is a body of believers praying together earnestly uh, for a certain cause. And also that we would gain a fresh desire, yes, to be more actively involved in this dynamic force of spiritual warfare. And I truly believe that it is a part of spiritual warfare. Uh, this thing of collective corporate prayer. And I think it's a dynamic force. I think it changes things. You know, you've seen the saying that prayer changes things. <laughs> it does. And God loves to answer prayer. But it's true that God doesn't always answer in the way that we see fit. But prayer always changes things. Prayer always changes things. And if it doesn't change the situation like we thought it should, prayer changes us. <laughs> you can't pray earnestly to God. You can't pour yourself out to God in true faith and true submission and seeking God's face on something and not be personally changed. It does a work in your own life. And there's also not only a, a personal benefit, but it, it's influential. The power of prayer then flows into those around you, I believe, as well. And we'll think about some of that. A couple impressions from my childhood that came to my mind when I think about corporate prayer. The first is, and there's more than this, but these two came to my mind. The first is, the first time as a, as a young fella, I was at an SMBI choir program. And this is the first I'd ever seen this, but it, it really stood out to me. It really impressed me deeply uh, as a young fella. And that is that as soon as the program was done, immediately the choir members uh, broke up into little small groups, maybe three or four, and immediately started praying at the front of the church. And I had never seen youth choirs do that before. Um, 
And I'm not saying that's always how it has to be done. But that impressed me. Like, to me, it said that there's something, there's something more than the eye can see. Like, there's something deeper here. Like, there's spiritual warfare. There's a battle that is raging. And, and that just, that stood out to me. Just to see that, just to have that influence. I don't know if they still do that, do that or not, but I know that for some years at least that was sort of something you saw in the SMBI young people. And I'm not sure who was, who was influencing that, if it was uh, Brother Yuri Sharp or who exactly at that time was influencing that, but it was powerful. Another thing that I think of was when I was a young fellow uh, living in the Govan, South Carolina area, and our family was attending Barnwell Mennonite Church. And I don't know if this happened more than once or not, but I remember specifically our congregation, and I don't know what the need was. It was, it was some specific prayer need. And that night uh, in, our, in our church gathering, we stood, we got up and, and surrounded the sanctuary as a congregation and prayed in, in, that, in that stance. And that stood out to me. There was something, uh, something strong, something powerful about this, something uh, unifying. There's a body of believers that was banding together using the spiritual warfare of prayer. That was powerful. But once again, when you read through the book of Acts, you will find that Corporate, congregational, collective prayer was one of the pillars. In fact, it was foundational, I believe, to the ongoing growth and also the effectiveness of the church. So we're in Acts. I just want to point out some of these, and then we're going to look specifically at one story uh, as more of the text this morning. But here in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, and leading up to this, we have Jesus' ascension back to heaven. But then as they, as the disciples went away, back to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, verse 12, they went back to Jerusalem, in verse 13 it says, And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus and Judas the brother of James. Verse 14, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Or it says that, they all join together constantly in prayer. Now, it doesn't specify exactly what they were praying for, but that's how it describes this group. After Jesus left, this group went back home and they joined together in constant prayer. Such a characteristic as you start the early church. Jesus has left and this group is spending time in prayer. And then you move on to the end of the chapter where you have the uh, choosing of Matthias to take 
the place vacated by Judas. But it says there in verse 23 that they appointed two, Joseph and then Matthias. And then before they chose by lot who would serve, it says they prayed. And it gives the prayer there that they prayed. They prayed. Move over to chapter 2, towards the end of the chapter, where we have this beautiful picture of the fellowship of the believers. After Peter preached his powerful sermon, and many, many, many souls came to Jesus Christ, and the young church was just sort of exploding, notice what verse 41 and 42 says. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Okay? It says they devoted themselves to four things. This is the brand new church. Okay? (laughs) They devoted themselves to four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We could say those were the foundations, in a sense, of the early church, of the congregation. And I say, not only was corporate prayer their practice, But I believe, once again, it was foundational to their growth and effectiveness. This was a church that spent time praying together. They prayed together about specific needs. Prayer was an important part of their gatherings. And another thing that I note, when you look at these instances of corporate prayer in the book of Acts, you also see, along with it, After the prayer comes a growth, comes a blessing from God. Not not every place is it mentioned, but at least several of them mention that. After this situation and the time of corporate prayer, we have the blessing of God where the church is multiplied, where people are brought into the church, souls are saved, the church expands. There's something powerful about that. Now, move over to chapter 4, and let's just note verses 23 through 33. And this comes upon the release of Peter and John from prison. They spent more than one time in prison. This here is the first time recorded. But verse 23 reads this way. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, meaning the people, the congregation, they went back to their congregation. When the congregation heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Now, it says that they prayed this. I find it interesting. It doesn't say that one of them did. Now, I'm not trying to split hairs here, but it, it says that they prayed this. This is what they said. I don't know exactly how that looked that day as they gathered together. And then it goes on to say, verse 31, And when they had prayed, look what happened. The place was shaken. And, you know, sometimes we look back in the Greek to say, well, what does that mean? I mean, it says the place was shaken. Like, maybe it means something else. No, it means it shook, okay? It means the place shook. There was actually shaking taking place, okay? The place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. That's a direct answer to the prayer they just prayed. Give boldness. They spoke with boldness, and the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Once again, a direct answer to their prayer. Give them boldness to keep proclaiming the word of God. The prayer wasn't so much, please spare them from this. Please save them. But it was, give them boldness to keep ministering the word of God. And the prayer was answered. With great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The power of a praying church. God honored that in a mighty way. When we pray today, the church doesn't shake necessarily. At least we don't see it shaking. And yet, let me assure you that when the people of God pray today, there is a shaking that takes place in the spiritual world. There is a shaking. We could look at other instances. Uh, the one is in Acts chapter 6, where they appointed deacons, seven deacons, uh, to help with some of the everyday matters in the church. And once again, before choosing them, they prayed. There was a praying that happened as a collective body of believers for that work. Also in Acts chapter 13, before Barnabas and Saul were sent out to minister as missionaries, the church, it says, was worshiping and fasting Prior to that, the church was worshiping and fasting, and it was through that that the Holy Spirit said, set me out these men. People who were worshiping, people who were fasting, people who were in touch with Jesus Christ, it was through that that the Holy Spirit then spoke. And then, once again, the people fasted and prayed, laid their hands on them, and sent them off. Corporate prayer 
as a body of believers. But the story that I want us to look at this morning is chapter 12. And this story is about Peter's miraculous escape from a high security prison. Now before I go into that, I do want to read a quote from Val Yoder in his book, Being the Blessing, A Call to Love and Brotherhood. But he says this, one of the outstanding characteristics of the early church was their prayer life. Corporate prayer time took precedence to mid-afternoon activities as they met for the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that comes from, I believe it's Acts uh, chapter 4, perhaps, where Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. <laughs> you know the song. But Peter and John were going to pray. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was the hour of prayer. And that, this was the early church, and it was something that they did. Things ceased in the afternoon, and they went to pray. But Val goes on to write, Their diligence and attendance and their prioritizing of that time slot in the day beckons us to emphasize this vital corporate communication with the Lord. And then he goes on, and I won't share all this, but he goes on to, to share uh, some disappointing trends in our circles today. And largely, that being the tendency to get away from corporate prayer. Whether it be our Wednesday evening prayer meeting, or our Sunday morning prayer times, or prayer groups, there is a tendency to fall away from the urgency of that. And other things come into our lives, and other priorities take the place of those organized, collective prayer times. And he encourages us to be more diligent in that and to allow prayer, and to make prayer to be a very, very high priority. But here, in Acts chapter 12, we have this amazing story of how Peter was delivered from prison. And it's my intent to just simply read through this, verses 1 through 19, make a few comments along the way. And I'll also be sharing some various quotes uh, that I took from the Enduring Word commentary uh, that I felt gave some very good insight into this story and, and personally challenged me quite a bit. Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. Now notice it says, about that time, it's, it's speaking to just prior to this, we have recorded in the end of chapter 11, uh, the church in Antioch. And it's a beautiful story of where actually persecution was key to starting the church at Antioch. So the believers were being persecuted, which then forced them into another area, 
And therewith, the church at Antioch was formed, and it was a vibrant place. It was a place that there was much growth. It says that in verse 21 of chapter 11, the hand of the Lord was with them. A great number believed and turned to the Lord. And in fact, in verse 26, we read where uh, Barnabas and Saul spent a whole year there, assembling with the church, teaching the people. It was a beautiful time, a time of growth, a time of, of learning the word of God and growing in the Christian life. And in fact, it says that's where the believers were first known as Christians. So that was the, that was the times that this was in. The word of God was was expanding. The church was growing. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Beware of mountaintop experiences. Oh, we love mountaintop experiences. And mountaintop experiences are refreshing. And we need them. But beware of them. Beware of them. Because wherever there's a mountain... There's a valley close by. And oftentimes, immediately following a mountain is a valley in our lives. And we have this situation here where the church was expanding and growing. There was much blessing. And then Herod the king arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. Now this Herod was... Herod Agrippa I, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, uh, who was the Herod that was ruling when Jesus was born. This Herod Agrippa I was also the nephew of, of Herod Antipas, um, who had a role in the trial of Jesus. The Herods were known to be a very cruel, fierce, full of pride now, this could go on and on kind of family. And it definitely trickled down from one to the next. But this was the Herod. Verse 2, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this gives a little balance, I believe, to this story. Because we're getting ready to see Peter being delivered in a miraculous way. But not everyone experienced that. Do you think the church wasn't praying for James? Do you think this is one that somehow flew under the radar that, whoops, we missed that one? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I believe it does speak about the sovereignty of God. That God has ways of answering prayer that is so much higher than we can imagine. God sees the bigger picture in all of this and simply sparing life isn't always the greatest thing on God's list. I'm speaking physical life, that is. God sees the bigger picture. And here we have James, the brother of John, killed. And this probably was especially hard for the believers because this was one of the disciples. This was the first of the disciples to be martyred. Now, Stephen had been martyred before, but... We now see that dying for Jesus' sake wasn't just something for other Christians, but 
even those who had the power of the apostles, you could say, even those who were very close to Jesus, were also dying for him. In fact, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise, I guess, because Jesus said that you can expect that. And then Peter wrote later that all those who are in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But verse 3, because Herod saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. Let me just mention this quick little interesting note before moving there to verse 3. And that is that Eusebius, who was a church historian from years ago, he relates this story from Clement of Alexandria, who said that the soldier that was guarding James before the judge at his trial was so deeply impacted by the witness of James that he declared that he would also become a Christian. And he was then martyred immediately following James. It's powerful. But moving into verse 3, I believe Herod thought perhaps that, boy, if it pleased the Jews so much to take out James, just think how much popularity, just think how it would improve my ratings if I took out Peter. I mean, Peter, in fact, was the spokesperson, was he not, in many ways, of the church, the leader of the church in many ways, the fiery preacher perhaps. Verse 4, and when he, Herod, had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four praetorians of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Sixteen soldiers. Now, more than likely, not all 16 were watching Peter at the same time. More than likely, it was groups of four, one for each watch of the night, so probably four at a time. But still, very high security, very high security for Peter. You know, Peter had mysteriously escaped from prison before, and that was uh, back in chapter 5, actually, where we have the situation where Peter and John were preaching in the name of Jesus. And they were arrested and put in prison. And during the night, the angel of the Lord came and let them out. We don't have many details about that one. But Herod was like, that ain't going to happen again. <laughs> That's not going to happen again. And so here we have high security to keep this guy in jail. Verse 5. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And here I see the contest. Here we have the contest. We have Herod and his soldiers and his prison versus God and a praying church. It's no match. Absolutely no match. It was easily decided. You know, no situation is hopeless when God is in it and a praying church is behind it. 
No situation is hopeless. This word here, ceasing, it says, but prayer, but prayer was made without ceasing. We could also say, prayer was made earnestly. Or another word is, constant prayer was being made by the church for Peter. Constant prayer was being made. Literally, I find this interesting. Literally, the Greek word there, the word pictures someone that's stretching out all they can for something. That's the picture there. And I quote, the Greek word here, ektenes, is a medical term describing the stretching of a muscle to its limits. I find it interesting that Luke uses this very same word in relation to the agonizing prayer that Jesus made to the Father there in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, well, the scripture there says that, and he being in agony prayed more earnestly. It's that word. It's the same word here. Prayed more earnestly. And so here, the believers were in fact little Christians. <laughs> they were little Christs, as it were. They were praying in the same way that Jesus had prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I quote, Much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks earnestness. Too often we almost pray with the attitude of wanting God to care about things we really don't care too much about. Earnest prayer has power not because it in itself persuades a reluctant God, Instead, it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things God cares about. Earnest prayer. Unceasing prayer. Constant prayer. It is a, it is a heart that is in tune with the heart of God. It is a heart that is passionate about the things God cares about. And that's what makes the prayer powerful. That's what makes it earnest prayer. Verse 6. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. Okay, so here we have Peter. Now normally I understand that a criminal would have been, would have been handcuffed and then chained to one soldier. Here Peter is chained to two soldiers. We've got one chain on this hand to this soldier and one chain on this hand to this soldier. <laughs> okay? So two soldiers here, and the, others, the other two are keeping the doors, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. So we've got these four that are working together to keep this criminal in place. But Peter is fast asleep. What does that tell us? Here it is. Seemingly the last night of his life. It appears that he would be executed the next day. And Peter is fast asleep. In fact, so fast asleep that the angel had to smack him, as it were, on the side. Get up! The word smote is like a violent term. It says the, the angel smote him in the side. It's not just, Peter, it's time to get up. No, it wasn't that at all. But it's like, bang, get up, quick, get up. And he was just out. What, is, what does that tell us? How can that challenge us? 
in the face of in the face of death, in the face of the unknown, in the face of whatever. This man had a faith in God. He just trusted in God. Verse 7. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly! And his chains fell off from his hands. I can't help but notice the similarity of the wording between this and in Luke chapter 2. Once again, it's the same writer. Okay, In Luke chapter 2, we have, And lo! The angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. That's the angel of the Lord coming to the shepherds on the hills outside of Bethlehem. But we have the same writer now saying, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. Once again, it's the angel of the Lord, and there's light. There's brilliant light. The glory of the Lord is in that place. Both times, dark places are illuminated by the presence of God. You know, all of Herod's high security <laughs> meant nothing to God. I mean, his soldiers, all the chains, the inner prison, wherever it was, that meant nothing to God. Just like that, instantly Peter was free. The chains fell off. And Peter was free. And let me just say that Wilson Joseph and his gang and their threats mean nothing to God. God is not restricted or held back or hindered in any way by that. If God so chooses, those 17 could be free instantly if God so chooses. God is in control. God is in control. Verse 8. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garments about thee and follow me. And as he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. I'll just simply mention that, you know, isn't it a fascinating combination of miraculous and ordinary. I mean, here God was miraculously delivering Peter, but he says, get up, put your clothes on, tie your shoes, <laughs> get your coat, follow me. <laughs> what a fascinating combination <laughs> of miraculous and ordinary. Tie your shoes. <laughs> Verse 10. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened for them of his own accord. By the way, that phrase, of his own accord, is the Greek automatos. Automatically. That's where we get our word automatically. The iron gate just opened automatically. I mean, that was even before Halifax overhead doors. I mean, you know, it just opened. And they went out and passed on through the street, I'm sorry, through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Isn't that special, how the angel took him safely away? They went down one street, and then the angel left. Small detail, but it just shows that God's, he's concerned about the details. 
God is in charge. I quote, many of us worry about the iron gate before we ever get to it. A month beforehand, and we're anxious about the iron gate. But God will take care of it when we come to it. For Peter, it was opened of its own accord. Verse 11, and when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all expectation of the people of the Jews. Now I know for sure, Peter said. And once again I say, you know, James was killed, but Peter was delivered. Why? Why is this? And we don't always know why. At least most times we don't know why. And yet we must learn to trust God's perfect timing. In Ecclesiastes we read something like this, that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And we don't always see that. We don't usually see that. But I believe one day we will understand better. We'll all understand it. By and by. So what about when God doesn't answer our specific prayer? Can we still say that we know for sure that God is in control? Can we? Verses 12 through 17, let's move along here. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. There's the church behind the scenes praying. All Peter knew they'd be praying. This was no new thing. They didn't just quick call, you know, put on a calling post and say, we're going to do something we haven't done before. Let's start praying. No, this was the practice of the early church. Okay. And he knew where they would be. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when she had opened the door and saw him, no, but when they had opened the door and saw him, you see, it wasn't her alone that ran back. They said, okay, let's go see what you're talking about. So I can picture a whole group of them going to the door. Had this whole group of people at the door. When they saw him, they were astonished. Verse 17, and everybody started talking at one time. <laughs> but he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things unto James and to the brethren. Now, James had been killed, at least that James. This was James, the brother of Jesus, who was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. This was another James, okay? Go tell James and tell the brethren. And Peter departed and went into another place. And I find this interesting that other than showing up briefly at conference, that's the last we hear of Peter. <laughs> I mean, he showed up at conference in Acts chapter 15 and helped discuss the situation. But for, Peter's off the scene from then on. 
And, and the rest of the book of Acts is more about Paul. God had a place for him. God had a job for him. We know later then he did write uh, the letters, First and Second Peter. His work wasn't done, but we don't find him, at least not much. Verse 18, now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. That may be one of the greatest understatements in the Bible. <laughs> there was no small stir what had become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And we'll stop there. Now that was customary from my understanding. If a prisoner who was under your guard escaped, you then took uh, the penalty that that prisoner deserved. And so in this situation, it was death. And so those 16 soldiers, I don't care how handsome or strong or they were, they lost their lives over that. I just say again that no situation is hopeless when God is in it and a praying church is behind it. I just once again want to encourage us as a body of believers to be actively engaged in corporate prayer. There is power in a body of believers that prays together. Someone has said something to this effect that a church that prays together stays together. Maybe you've heard that with a family as well. A family that prays together stays together. You see, a church that prays together experiences God in many ways. And it's not that they only experience answered prayer, because God does delight in answering prayer. They certainly, they do experience that, and there is power in that. But a church that prays together, I believe, also experiences things such as growth, individually and corporately. They experience things like unity. A church that prays together experiences a unity of spirit. There's blessing there. A church that prays together uh, is sensitive to one another. And I say that in a good way. They become sensitive to the needs of one another. How can I pray for you? How can I pray for you? What, what are you going through? That type of thing. But they also become more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. I believe also that a, a church that prays together their eyes become more open to needs around them. And perhaps that's a big part of the unity that they experience then. It's not an inward look as much as it is an outward focus. Church that prays together for the needs around them. And the list could go on and on. A few things that come to my mind. I would simply like for us to gather around this sanctuary as we did many years ago in Barnwell, South Carolina, and spend a few minutes in specific prayer for the situation in Haiti.